Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. As Amy said, it's really good to be back um, with you all. We we attempted to have fun on a vacation last week, and and let's just say we attempted to have fun on a vacation last week, but it is good to be back with you. This week, there was a night this week where I thought that I was on baby duty because Amy wasn't feeling too well. So so we're sleeping this night, and, and in the middle of the night, Amy wakes me up to tell me that the babies are crying. And knowing that it's my turn on baby duty, so I immediately stand up and I start walking to the door. But now I'm half asleep, and you all know I'm not very motherly. And so I'm, I'm wondering to myself, what am I going to actually do to calm this baby down? Like, yeah, I can pick it up. Yeah, I can hold it. But I'm not mommy. So what am I going to actually do? So I'm walking through this in my head as I'm walking to the, the door and, and pitch black. And Amy says, what are you going to do? And, and I, I kind of chuckled to myself like, yeah, that's what I'm asking. And so I responded and I said, I have no idea. So then she says, okay, well, just wait a minute. So I waited a minute, and then the babies fell back asleep, which meant I got up for nothing. And so I went back to bed a little angry. And so then the next day, I made a a rather passive-aggressive joke about it to Amy, and I, I asked her if she was going to wake me up again tonight just to tell me that the babies went back to sleep. To which she responds and she says, what, that, that's not at all what happened. And so her version of the story is that the baby started crying and I happened to flip over and I responded and just said, what? So she answered me and said that the babies were crying and then I just immediately got up and started walking to which she said, what are you doing? Not what are you going to do, but what are you doing? And then from this point on in the story, we we have the exact same story that I responded with, I have no idea. She says, wait a minute. I wait a minute. Babies fall back asleep and I go back to bed rather angrily. And so she's telling me this And so now we have this little uh, playful mini court trial to determine, well, whose story is accurate? And Emma, our oldest, was off at kids camp, and so we had uh, the other three kids there. So we had Riley and the two babies who acted as our jury. And so we said, Riley, whose story is correct? Riley said, Mommy, of course. And so then I went to the babies and I said, hey, babies, whose story was correct? To which they responded and said, Dada because that's all they can say at this moment. And so I knew I was going to win there, even though it wasn't fair. And I tell you this story because there are times in our lives where two people can experience the exact same thing, but yet have two completely different understandings of what had actually happened. In my case, I was half asleep. And so my version was probably not very trustworthy, but sometimes it's hard to know whose story is actually correct, whose version is correct. And there are also times when this happens with expectations 
expectations that we have. Maybe it's in a relationship, a, a friendship, a, a, a romantic relationship where you have expectations of what the other person is going to do. And when they don't do those things, then there is some conflict of these misunderstood expectations. Or same thing with legal contracts where, where you have an expectation that, that one party is going to do something. And then if those expectations are not clear, then it often leads to arguments and disagreements over what those expectations are. And then it comes back to this main question of, of what actually is the expectation or what do we actually desire the other party to do. And in the same way, I think we often do this with God. We, we have an expectation of what our life will look like. And so when that doesn't happen, we turn to God and we say, what's the big deal? Why aren't you holding up your end of this agreement? Why aren't you blessing me? Why am I going through all of this pain and suffering? And eventually you might even ask, God, what is it that you actually desire from me or from us? How can we actually please you. And I have some atheist friends that, that one of the primary reasons that they don't believe in God is because they say that if God really does exist, then it is completely unfair for this God to set these outrageous expectations upon his own creation that they could never live up to. So they say that's ridiculous and I want nothing to do with it. There's a story in the Bible where this same thing happens. That this same, this misunderstanding of expectations happens between God and the Israelites. We're in the book of Micah today, specifically in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we find a courtroom scene. And it's this argument over expectations of the legal contract, which was called the covenant. And the covenant is rather straightforward. It was given to the Israelites a thousand years prior to, to this scene in this courtroom. And it was given through Moses after God rescues and saves all of the Israelites and delivers them from slavery. And in its most basic sense, that this contract basically tells all of the Israelites that they must be a holy nation by following a set of rules. And really, the set of rules are just simply to love God with their whole self and to love their neighbor as themselves. And these are the two categories of things that they must do. And there are several laws explaining how they are to do those things. And so the expectation is that the Israelites would follow all of those rules, which again are best summarizing by loving God and loving neighbor. And the expectation of God is that as they follow those rules, he would then bless and protect those people. And before we, we jump into this court case in chapter 6, it's important to understand 
the context that, that leads up to this in the first five chapters. These first five chapters are explaining how for the past thousand years, the, the, the Israelites have failed. They have continued to break the contract. They have continued to disobey all of the laws, that they worship other gods. They, they hate their neighbors. They are extremely selfish and greedy. And then God sends this prophet named Micah. And Micah, he goes to the southern kingdom called Judah and he tells the people how they specifically have been so corrupt, especially the leaders of these Jewish people. He says that the leaders have built all of these false idols, these false gods, and forced the people to worship them. He talks about how the leaders, they, they have used blood money and earnings from prostitutes to fill up the storerooms in the temples. They, they have continued to raise taxes and create these greedy laws that just further oppress all of the people. They've continued to abuse their power. At one point, Micah goes as far to call out the, the leaders and call them cannibals. He, he describes their actions as being just like if they ate the flesh of their own people. So this is the context that is leading up to this court case that is in chapter 6. And this court case again is where God is bringing a judgment, an accusation against the people for violating the terms of the contract. Here we are to the court case, verse 1 of chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So imagine this courtroom scene. And I think in some way, whether from personal experience or from media, you're, you're familiar with what a, a courtroom typically looks like, at least in today's culture. There's usually a judge wearing a big black robe that sits up behind that's judging everything. And usually off to the side is some type of a, a jury. And then there is a prosecutor or a plaintiff that is bringing charge against somebody. And then there's another party that those charges are being brought against and they're called the defendants. They defend their case. And then this court case goes on where, where usually they take turns asking questions, bringing witnesses all to help prove to the judge and the jury whether or not somebody is guilty. So here we have this courtroom scene where God is both the judge, but God is also the, the prosecutor. He's the plaintiff bringing the charge against the people. The people, the Israelites, they are the defendants. And the jury is made up of the hills and the mountains that have been around for all of time as the foundations of the earth. So then God, the prosecutor, he goes first. Verse 3, my people... What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted for what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." 
God starts off with this question. He, he asks the people, what is it that he as God has actually done to the people? He says, how have I actually burdened you? And then he asks them for a response to which none is given. And then he walks through how he has upheld his end of the contract. Again, his part of the contract was to keep and protect and bless the people. And instead of weighing them down with a burden, he redeemed and set them free from Egypt. And instead of allowing harm to come to them, he walks through how he gave them very capable leaders, how he protected them against Balak who wanted to destroy them, how he guided them across the Jordan River from Shittim to Gilgal into the promised land. He tells them to remember this so that they may know the righteous acts of the Lord. In other words, remember how he has been faithful to his end of the contract. God is reminding the people that he is indeed faithful and that he is a God of grace and mercy. He does not start off this court case by talking about how high and mighty he is. He doesn't start off by, by talking about how people should just worship him because he is the creator of everything. He, he instead, he gives them concrete evidence through historical acts of the ways that he has actually provided for them. And so now the people get to respond in this court case, verse 6. And as I read this, I want you to listen to how sarcastic their response is. Verse 6. This is the people responding. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The question that they are asking is what does God desire of them? And so then they, they answer their own question and they give five responses that, that are very rhetorical and extremely sarcastic. And each of these answers are all about sacrifice, which is similar to us today saying that we're gonna offer money back to God through our donations and through our, our church tithes and offerings. What they're trying to do is to pay off God. And so they start off with things that are less expensive and slowly grow to more expensive and even unrealistic. They say, should we give burnt offerings? Or should we give the really expensive baby calves? Or should we gather up a thousand rams? Or should we give you 10,000 rivers filled with expensive oil? Should we offer our firstborn child as a sacrifice? These are unrealistic. And what they're doing is they're first asking God what God actually desires of them, but then they're throwing it back onto God and insinuating that, that what God requires is too much for them to handle. In a way, they are telling God that he is unreasonable and cannot be pleased. I can't help but, but read this and relate it back to my own life. 
of times where I've had similar things that I've said to God. Maybe not to the extreme of what we just read, but, but times where I've, I, I've asked God why he wasn't there to protect me. Why didn't he do enough? Why is he allowing pain and suffering? I've asked God what it is that, that he truly desires from me. I respond to him and I say, I've followed you faithfully. I love you with all of my being. I do my best to love my neighbor, but yet you still allow me to suffer in such great ways. I still get attacked so hard. So God, what is it that you actually desire from me? What would actually convince you enough to help me out? Maybe you've gone through similar times in your life where you've asked those same things or, or, or even now where, where you question God, you question the things that, that he is doing or the things that he is not doing. And I think sometimes we put God on trial like this, where, where we accuse God of all the bad things that have happened in our life. And, and we put him on the stand and we ask, what are you doing? What is it that you actually desire from us? What would actually please you enough to bless us and protect us? And this in a way is what the Israelites are doing. So now God responds, verse 8. God says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short epoch which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword." You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. The people asked God what he required of them. And God responded and said, it's simple. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. But then God continues. He, he says, your end of the contract was easy, but you have not done it. God says, how could I just let this go? Why should I ignore everything that you have done? How would it be fair or just to set you free after the horrible ways that you have gone against the covenant. And if we think about it, God is right. If God is a God of justice, if he is fair, then he can't let the people go without a punishment. 
If we think about it in context, God chose the Israelite nation to be a holy nation that would eventually bring peace and restoration to all of humanity. He specifically tells them that they would be a blessed and holy nation, but they must keep up their end of the contract. And throughout Israelites' history, God has, in a way, shown favoritism to the Israelites. He has protected them. He hasn't blessed the other nations like he has Israel. And so if God lets Israel go free without punishment, how would that be fair to all of the other nations in the world? That would be the opposite of fair and just. That would be cruel to the rest of humanity. Israel has sinned and committed a great crime and they deserved punishment. The people deserved death. And so God tells them that they will be destroyed, that they will be punished. But that presents us with a bit of a a problem. A a bit of a problem for humanity. Because if the chosen nation Israel, the one blessed and favored by God, if they are unable to keep the covenant, and if salvation for everyone has to come through these people, then how can anyone ever be saved? If God is promising a future kingdom, a heaven on earth, then how can anyone earn their way into this perfect kingdom? How could we today ever be perfect enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven? The answer is that we can't. The Israelites have proved that they couldn't do it. They tried for thousands of years but continued to fail. But there is hope. Chapter 5 of of Micah gives us the hope of a Messiah. Verses 2, 4, and the beginning of 5. Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruled, ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace." This gives us hope of a future savior. And who fits these prophecies? Jesus does. Micah says that that this future savior would be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew's gospel chapter 2 verse 1 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Micah says that this future savior would come from origins of of old times, which is a prophecy given to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 13 that says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel uh, 
provides us with the lineage, uh, the, the ancestry of Jesus that, that traces the line of Jesus right back to King David as was promised. Micah says that the Savior in chapter 5 would be our peace. Ephesians 2 verse 14, Paul says, talking about Jesus, he says, for he himself is our peace. Micah says that this future, this future Savior would be a shepherd in the strength and majesty of the Lord. And Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the promised Savior, the promised Messiah that would come to save the people. In the courtroom scene, the Israelites at this point, they are found guilty for breaking the contract. And so now they must pay the penalty. But how can they actually make up for all of these past sins. The, the Israelites, they, they asked how it's possible for them to do this, how it's possible for them to actually make God happy, to make things right. They, they, they ask if they can offer up an unreasonable amount of, of sacrificing, of sacrifices, meaning can they just pay off their debt? And while it was sarcastic, it's a very fair question. But God responds and says, no, you can't make up for this through your giving. He has given them several chances to turn their life around and be better people. The only solution is for somebody to pay the price for all that sin. But it can't just be anyone. It can't just be one sinful person who, who, who pays the death penalty because technically that one person would only then be able to pay it for another person. This one individual sinful person could only act as a substitute for one other person. Which means that for one person to do this, that one person would have to be somebody who has never sinned in their life. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He says, God made him, talking about Jesus, him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why the work on the cross is so important. To summarize what, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who is God, left heaven to become a human being. Jesus lived a perfect life without sin, and then he humbled himself. He, he sacrificed himself as a good shepherd would, and he died on the cross to pay off our debts, to pay the penalty. And so we're in this, this courtroom scene where, where, where God, the prosecutor is saying, Israelites, you are guilty. The judge is saying, now you are guilty. You must pay this price. And Jesus steps into the courtroom. He opens the door and he, he stands between, between God and the people. And Jesus says that the people, they cannot pay off the penalty. Therefore, I myself offer myself as a substitute as an atonement. Our sins, our sins as an entire people are forgiven. Our slate is now wiped clean. But the Israelites in the time of Micah, as they received this prophecy, they had no choice but to wait. No choice but to continue to, to suffer as they are waiting for this promised Messiah to deliver them. 
But the beauty is that we don't have to wait because Jesus has already come. So then the question is, what do we do now? Two things. First, we accept this salvation, this free gift to wipe away all of our sins. Second thing is that we return to that original question. The question was, what does God desire? And the answer in verse 8 of chapter 6 was very clear. God says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There are three things that we must do. First, we must act justly. This means that we don't take advantage of other people. We're not unfair. We are not selfish in putting ourselves above other people. Instead, we are righteous. We are fair. We are humble. We put the needs of other people above our own. Second, he says that we love mercy. And within the context of this entire chapter, this, this goes much more than just simply loving the act of mercy or just simply loving the word mercy. Within the context, this is a call to love, to, to love God and to love neighbor, which was the, the covenant to begin with. The third thing that we must do is to walk with God. This is talking about our day-to-day -day activities. We don't just simply walk with God on Sundays. We don't just try to be like the Israelites that assume we can just offer up some money and everything will then be okay. It means that we walk daily with God, that we are in a direct relationship with him, that we are following his leading, that we are learning to trust in him and him alone. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A faithful disciple, a faithful follower of Jesus is someone that, 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 that does, that, that loves and that walks. We must move beyond this, this debate and theory. Unfortunately, Christians are known for just talking about these things, but not actually doing these things. And Micah is saying we must move beyond just talking about it and move towards actually doing it. We move forward in action. As we say here, we must be and share the gospel. It means that we move beyond just thought, beyond just conversation, beyond just saying, oh, that's a good idea, and we move forward into action. And so as we close out this, this service today, as a way to move into action, we will respond this morning through communion. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.